All right, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4 is where we're going to begin today. The title of this morning's message is, What Will It Take for You to Believe in God? Now, I do understand that most of us here this morning are here because we do believe in God. Otherwise, why would you be in church on Sunday morning? And uh, uh, we do know that there are some that are searching, but we say we believe in God and we do everything that we do because we say we believe in God, but yet when the real crisis comes in our life, do we really believe in God? And what I want us to do, if you were here for Sunday school, we kind of set the stage with the story of the widow woman at Zarephath and how that she believed enough in God and in the man of God to do what he said and to live every day for nearly three years. But it wasn't until tragedy happened in her life that she really and truly believed. And there's a lot of verses in the Bible that speak to people who believe, I guess the best way to put it may be that they believe about God, but they truly don't believe in God. It talks about those that believe, but not to the saving of the soul. It's a terrifying thought as a pastor to stand before you week after week, And to know that there are people here in this auditorium that are not saved. And yet even more tragic is to know that people are saved, but they do not believe God's word enough to be simply obedient to it. Whether that be baptism or following in church membership or in daily decisions to trust God instead of the powers that be. You know, it's interesting. If you put a lab coat on, people will believe you. I've actually thought about wearing one into the pulpit Sunday morning just to see if it would make any difference. Uh, They did an experiment years ago. They got a group of people together... And they set them in a chair that was wired to a buzzer. And when you push the buzzer, the person in the chair got an extremely unpleasant uh, sensation of electricity uh, in their body. Nothing to really hurt them, but but according to the test results, it made you feel like you'd been hurt. And they made every one of them sit in that chair... And press the button so everybody in the group would understand that it hurt the person sitting in the chair when you pushed the button. And then the guy who had explained this said, now, uh, you, you sit in the chair, took one of their group and said, now I want, I want you to push the button. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. And then they brought a guy in a lab coat in that looked like a doctor. And he said, push the button. Nine times out of ten. Knowing that it would hurt the person sitting in the chair, having experienced the pain themselves, because the guy looked authoritative, they did it anyway. No more coercion than just a man standing there in a lab coat saying, push this button and hurt this other part of your team. Uh, sometimes I do not wonder why God calls us the sheep of his pasture. We follow. We often don't even think about what we are following. This is our 20th year as a church, and I will tell you that all of those 20 years I prayed that God would give our church people that did not just have a paper faith in God, but had a living, breathing, thinking relationship 
with the God of the Bible. That were Christians on purpose. That not only said they believed in God, but knew why they believed in God and knew enough of, and had enough belief in God that it changed the way they behaved during the week. That's what the Bible calls real Christianity. Could we say amen to that? I mean, if your belief doesn't work, fix it. Amen? I mean, how many of you would have a car that just sat on the street and it didn't run? And you get tickets because you couldn't move it toward the alternate side street, street sweeping. Say that fast three times. And you, you knew the car was broken and you didn't fix it and you just left it set there and then they towed it and sent you a great big bill. And how many of you would like a car like that? You'd say, that's foolish, Pastor. Why would I do that? Well, I want to challenge you this morning to think, why would you want a faith like that? Why would you want a belief in God that doesn't work? That doesn't give you real answers to real problems in real time. You heard about the guy that was praying, just a little joke. And he said, God, the Bible says that a day is it's a thousand days. And uh, I mean, a, a day, an hour, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is, is a day to you. God suggests that's what the Bible says. And he said, does it work the same with money? Would a would a thousand dollars be like a dollar to you? God said, yes. He said, uh, God, could I have a thousand dollars? God said, tomorrow. In a thousand years, amen? Just a little joke. But often that's the way we treat God. We think we can manipulate Him into giving us things, that we can order Him around, or we can say, God, you know I have a need, and you're under obligation to meet my needs. Uh, let me tell you, you wouldn't approach your boss that way at work, would you? Why would we approach the God of heaven that way? It's because we got a real problem with this word believe. And as we learned in our story, God is interested in you believing in God. He will do things to bring you to that point to where you will believe in him. I can end with the ultimate, which will be at the great white throne judgment. You will believe in God then, but it won't do you any good. It'll be too late. God is working in our world presently so that you have the opportunity to believe in Him. And what I want us to do this morning is walk through just a few passages, three different stories in the book of John. And, and we're not going to be talking about the woman on, at the well. We're going to the end of the chapter, chapter 4, verse 47, verse 46. I'm sorry, verse 46 of John chapter 4. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Can you hear the passion and the despair in those words? 
Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Now, I want to stop right here and just get the story. I don't know how many of you have ever had a sick child. But it will do things to you that nothing else will. Amen? You... You think you know how to pray, but when your kid is sick, seriously, you're going to pray in ways that you've never prayed before. Because there's just something in the heart of a parent. God put it there for their children. And God wants that to be a reflection of his love and his concern for us. Amen? And so this man heard, and we know that he was a noble man, the Bible tells us. He, he was not just your ordinary average Joe. He was not just a, a regular guy. He was, he was important. And, and we all know that there are lots of important people uh, in the world. And, but this guy forgot how important he was because his child was about to die. He went to where Jesus was. You know what he was saying with that? You see, when an important person wants a lesser important person to see them, what does your boss say? I want to see you in my office. You don't tell your boss, well, why can't we talk right here? It would be more convenient if we did it on our lunch break. Well, it wouldn't be your boss very long now, would it? Uh, if the President of the United States said, I want to meet with you, you wouldn't say, uh, well, Barack, when you get a break, uh, I, I work over here at the local deli. Just stop in, order a sandwich, and we can talk over the counter. Would you do that to the President of the United States? No. The Secret Service would whisk you off somewhere. You'd be in trouble. You do, and you prepare yourself months ahead of time to show up in Washington, D.C. at the time appointed, dressed the way you're supposed to be dressed. Men, do you know that they would not let you in the Oval Office to see the president without a suit and tie? It's just protocol. You wouldn't be allowed in. In fact, they have a, a little closet full of coats and ties that if some emergency comes, you'll try to fit into one of those and put a tie on so you could see the president. It really is that way. This nobleman went to where Jesus was. You know what that's saying? He's more noble than I am. He's more important than I am. Now, why was he so desperate to see Jesus? Well, that's plain. The story tells us his son was about to die. He was going to do whatever it took for his son to be made well. I want to tell you, his faith was in the right place, was it not? Where better could you put your faith than in Jesus Christ? He knew that Jesus had the power to heal his son. He believed that Jesus would have compassion and come down to his house and heal his son. And Jesus did something a little different. He said, your son lives. Go home. And it said, the man believed the word that Jesus spake unto him. Now, isn't that good? Amen? He believed the word that Jesus spake. He turned around and he went home. But I want us to go back and read the rest of this story because we're going to see that it's not quite as simple as we might think it is. In verse 51, And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. 
Now read very carefully with me. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed in his whole house. Did you get that? He believed the word that Jesus said. He was turning around. He went the way back to his house, which was somewhat of a journey. And his servants were coming down the road and he met them. And they said, Master, your son lives. It's a miracle. He said, what time did he get better? Wait a minute. What's the catch here? You see, the father wasn't convinced that it was Jesus until they matched up their sundials. And said, well, it's about the seventh hour. That'd be about one o'clock in the afternoon. And... Wait a minute, let me think here. Now, what was going on? Where was the sun in the sky? You know, they didn't have Seiko and all that stuff back then. He said, yeah, it was about the same time. It was the same time. Therefore, Jesus did it. Let me ask you a question. Why did the noble man's son get sick? Could I challenge you that God wanted the family to believe in Jesus? Does that mean every sickness has a purpose? Yes. Does that mean you're going to know about it? No. Once in a while, God pulls back the veil of his sovereignty and lets us see what he is doing. He's not under obligation to explain it to you. He's God. How many of you have ever dealt with little children? What is their favorite word? Why? What are you doing, Dad? Fixing the kitchen. Why? Because we put the baptistry in and tore the kitchen up. Why? Because the building department said we had to put a, bo- uh, uh, a beam and post in there so the baptistry wouldn't fall through the floor when it was full of water and people. Why? Because we want to be safe. Why? Because Daddy said so. Okay. We do that to God all the time. Why did this man have to go through so much sorrow and anguish of soul that he would leave his house and go out into the countryside hunting for this man called Jesus? And when he found him, he falls down before him and prostrates himself and says, my son is going to die and you can do something about it. And Jesus says, go home. He believes But he doesn't believe in Jesus until he's gotten out his sundial and matched up the time. You see, Jesus nailed it before it started. Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Let me tell you, there's an awful lot going on today about signs and wonders, are there not? Could I give you God's greatest sign and his greatest wonder? Right here. I wish we had time this morning to give a history of this book that I hold in my hand. 
It is the most amazing history how God preserved a book for you and I today. Do you know parts of your Bible are 4,000 years old? Can you tell me one book that you can go down to the bookstore and buy that is 4,000 years old? And someone says, yeah, you, you, can, you can go down to the bookstore and, and, and get a copy of, uh, uh, what is it, Ulysses or the, the Odyssey. That's it. No, sorry. Uh, that only predates Christ less than 1,000 years. Not even close. Not even close to your Bible. And somebody said, well, I got the Gilgamesh epic. How many of you have ever heard of the Gilgamesh epic? One, two, three, four. Anybody else? Let's get an honest count here this morning. How many of you care about the Gilgamesh epic? Zero. Oh, we had one back there. Always one obstinate one in the group. No. Um, It's a great book of antiquity. You know what the Gilgamesh epic really is? It's a really poor retelling of Noah's Ark. An emphasis on poor. I got the original in the Bible. What in the world do I need with a poor copy of a story that I have told perfectly in my scriptures? You see, if you're out there looking for signs and wonders today, I'm here to tell you that God has given you an incredible sign and an unbelievable wonder in His Word. And if you'll just accept what this book says, that's all you'll need to get you through this life and into eternity. You might hear someone, but, but preacher, in the, in the book of Acts, they spoke in tongues and they did miracles and the apostles. Why don't you do these things today? And it's very, very simple if you'll just believe what the Bible says. You see, when was our Bible complete? Somewhere between 95 and 105 A.D., depending on whose calendars you use. There were complete copies of the Bible in existence in the Old Latin as early as 120 to 150 A.D., in the original language of Armenia before 200 A.D., in the language of the Gauls, southern France, the ancient language before 250 A.D. That's old. There were the Greek and the Hebrew copies that are much older than that even. But the truth of the matter is, did did Paul ever hold a copy of this book in his hand? No. Did Peter or any of the other apostles? Did anyone in the church of Jerusalem during the history of the book of Acts hold a Bible in their hand? Absolutely not. How did the people in the city of Jerusalem, how were they to know that Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost was truth? Well, God gave those signs and wonders to prove that his word was true. Amen? Now, let me ask you a question. If God has proved his word is true and it's all recorded, the proof and the words in the Bible, what do you accomplish by reproving it today? Let me tell you, absolutely nothing. The only thing you do is cast more aspersion, doubt, 
upon the Word of God by trying to reprove something that God has already proved. Are we still together? I don't need to do a miracle for you to know that I'm preaching the truth. I just need to repeat to you what's printed in the proven Word of God. Amen? Why is it so quiet this morning? Do I need to yell louder? Maybe, and hopefully it's because we're thinking about this word belief. You see, if you believe in this book, it ought to help you make decisions in your life. How many of you read this book and decided to trust Jesus as your personal Savior? Because the Bible said so. Could we get a good amen on that? You see, he gives you an eternal salvation because he said so right here. I've had people say, well, Pastor, I'm doubting my salvation, but I, but I feel good when I read the Bible. Uh, don't look to those things. How many of you have ever had a sinus infection? Let me tell you something. You don't feel good about anything with a sinus infection. You don't even feel good when they finally give you the right medicine to get rid of it for a couple of days. And finally, after you get rid of it, you, oh, I'm so glad I'm done with that thing. Don't trust your feelings. Trust what's written down. This man wouldn't believe that Jesus had healed his son, even though his son was reported to be alive, until he aligned the times to make sure... That it worked out. Could I challenge you? Don't be like the nobleman in John chapter 4. Believe God's sign because it's written down. Amen? Let's go to John chapter 11. How many of you already know the story in John chapter 11? Most of us should. The story of Lazarus. Now, the interesting thing about this story is that there is an awful lot going on here with Lazarus. And the only thing that Lazarus had to do with it was to die. Uh, This story was not about Lazarus. Somebody said it was about Mary and Martha. Well, let's read the Bible here. Let's look at at verse 15. And it says, Jesus is speaking here. Verse 14, he tells them that Lazarus is dead. Verse 15, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that... What's that next word? Could you read it out loud? Who's ye? The disciples. He said, I'm glad I wasn't there that ye, the disciples, might believe. You know what that tells me? It tells me that people who have trusted Jesus as their Savior sometimes have a problem with believing. And Jesus did some pretty radical things to shake him up. Lazarus was Jesus' friend. Mary and Martha sent to him a message. And of course, John, when there was a special relationship, uh, he referred to that person not by their name. He referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved because there was a special relationship between John and Jesus. Holy, pure, and righteous. You know what? There was a special relationship between Jesus and Lazarus and between Jesus and Mary eventually. Mary didn't have it yet. She was going to get it the hard way. And so they send him this message, He whom thou lovest is sick, Mary and Martha. Martha and Mary, however it was signed. 
And Jesus stayed there and didn't pay any attention to it. He tells his disciples, listen, I'm glad I wasn't there because I want you to believe on me. Now, I want to challenge you that when Lazarus died, there was real suffering going on in that family and friends because Lazarus was really dead and none of them had any idea what Jesus was going to do. Only Jesus knew what he was going to do. I want you to skip down with me to verse 42. Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. Verse 41, he starts his prayer. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the... What's the next word there? The people which stand by, I said it, that they might believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus put this family through this incredible time of suffering and loss so that the disciples would believe, so that the people around there would believe. And skip down with me to verse 45. There's another group here. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Now, whenever you see capital J-E-W-S in your Bible, it's not talking about just Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. Everybody that lived in Bethany was Jewish. Everybody in the story was Jewish. It's talking about the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Levites, the priests. The religious leaders, when they saw what Jesus did at Lazarus' tomb, they had no choice except to abandon their tradition and believe on Jesus. I want to challenge you that God is interested in you believing on Him. Now let's stop and think about what Mary and Martha went through. They sent to Jesus knowing that He could heal their brother. Jesus doesn't show up until Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. Could I ask you what your first thought would be? Well, could I tell you what Martha's thought was? Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know even now, and she went on, you can do anything, Lord. Mary, she said, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died, period. I think that's one of the biggest periods in your entire Bible. Mary didn't have the faith in Jesus until after her brother was raised from the dead. Have you ever doubted someone only to find out that your doubts were unfounded? We've all done that, haven't we? How many of you have ever doubted God? If you're alive, you have. Let me tell you something, your doubts are unfounded because this Bible says so. The story of Lazarus is here. Jesus is always doing something that will help other people believe on him. We judge what goes on in this world and in our lives personally by the amount of pain we experience. If there's no pain, it's good. If there's lots of pain, it's bad. I want to challenge you that's not the way to judge life. If it's according to God's word, 
it's good. If it's not according to God's word, it's bad. You see, there was something else Jesus was doing that had nothing to do with any of the participants in this story. You go down to the end of the chapter, and in verse 46, it tells us that there were some that went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus did. Verse 47, then gathered the chief priest and the Pharisees a council and said, what do we for this man doeth many miracles? This was the causative agent that brought the power of the Pharisees, Sadducees to bring Jesus to the cross. Now, did they trick Jesus into getting on the cross? Did they manipulate events and play Pontius Pilate like a fine violin until the point to where he had to condemn Jesus to the cross? A careless reading of the scriptures might bring you to those conclusions, but nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus willingly laid down his life. Read John chapter 10. He was not a victim. He was the victor. Even in death, he was the victor. But Jesus could not just walk down to the Roman judgment seat and said, I present myself for crucifixion. It's not the way it worked. It had to be fulfilled according to the scriptures. And I, we don't have time this morning to be a whole nother sermon. But when the sacrifice was offered on the day of atonement, the high priest would confess his sins and the sins of Israel and lay his hands upon the sacrifice. What happened in the council of the Sanhedrin the night before Jesus was crucified? The servants of the high priest and Pharisees and Sadducees laid their hands upon Jesus. Only it wasn't like what happened on the Day of Atonement. They slapped him. They beat him. They pulled the hair out of his face. And they confessed their sins. Not knowingly, of course. If thou be the Christ, prophesy he who smote thee. You know what they were doing? They were confessing their unbelief in him as God. They fulfilled the Old Testament picture perfectly. The sacrifice was to be flayed. Pontius Pilate supplied the Roman scourge to cut up the sacrifice, which was Jesus. We could go on in all the things that were fulfilled, but let me tell you the causative agent that brought the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the high priest and all of their people together was what happened at Lazarus' tomb. You see, as God was working on the belief of those who would believe, he was also working on the unbelief of those who would never believe. Only God could get that accomplished. Amen. Let's do one more story. Won't be quite as long. John chapter 20. Jesus had risen from the dead. He had appeared to his apostles on Sunday evening. He resurrected Sunday morning. Had appeared Sunday morning to the women. Sunday afternoon to Peter. Then the two men to Emmaus. Sunday evening to almost all the disciples. Judas, of course, had killed himself, was not present, and Thomas was gone. And they told Thomas,
Verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side. Now look at these words. I will not believe. Now, Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples. He had performed miracles in Jesus' name. And he said, until I put my fingers in the nail prints, until he pulls back his robe where the Roman spear went into his chest, and I'm going to put my finger in the scar there to know that he is truly Jesus. He says, I'm not going to believe he rose from the dead. But read a little further. Chapter 28. Chapter 27, I'm sorry. I'm verse 27, chapter 20. Then saith he to Thomas, Jesus, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And I ask you a question today. Do you have the life that Thomas had? Somebody said, well, if I could just see Jesus, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. If you won't believe the word, you won't believe no matter what happens to you. Read Luke chapter 16. We don't have time to go there this morning. Do you have the life that Jesus offers? It comes by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we're eagerly awaiting the birth of a little child into our church family. Amen? Pray for Carolina. She's actually down in the children's church today. She's due either today or tomorrow. This is the week. So pray for her if you would. You know, when that little baby is born and you look into those little eyes and you hear those little baby noises, I tell you, there's there's nothing like that in this world. It's a wonderful thing. But you know, this church is to be a birthing center, spiritually speaking. It's a place where people learn what the Bible says so that they can believe in Jesus biblically. You see, Jesus isn't here to solve your problems. He's here to save you from your sin. There is a difference. Jesus isn't here just for you to get excited about him. He's here because he's God and he's the only one who can save you. Thomas had a problem. He didn't want to believe. It's all written down. If you don't want to believe, it's you that has the problem, not the scriptures. Well, how do I know the scriptures are true? 
Investigate them. Study them. Pry against them, if you will. This is the anvil which has worn out the hammers of the critics. Not the other way around. But I want us to really grab something today if we can and we'll be done. We try to separate our belief in Jesus for our salvation from our belief in Jesus in facing daily problems. And I want to challenge you, if you can separate that belief, you don't have Bible belief. We, we want to separate our belief in Jesus to save my soul from hell from a belief in Jesus that will cause me to live holy and clean during the week between Sundays. I want to challenge you, if you can separate your belief in Jesus from your practice during the week, you don't have Bible belief. We believe that Jesus can save my soul, but he won't forgive me for certain sins that I've committed. Let me tell you, if you believe that way, it's not Bible and you're not saved. Because Jesus forgives us for all sins. I want to believe Jesus will forgive me for my sins, but I'm not going to believe Jesus enough to forgive someone else for their sins against me. Let me tell you, read your Bible. That's not a saving belief. That's just religious huff and puff. If I believe in Jesus, he will change the way I live, the way I think. He will change my desires from the inside out. If you have a Christianity that you're working on saying, I just need to want to serve God more, but I don't want to. But I'm, let me tell you something. You got something wrong with your belief. I've met people. I, I want to believe that Jesus has saved me, but I just don't feel any assurance. That's not saving belief, my friend. The Bible says there will be many that say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, I'm going to say unto them, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. He didn't say, I knew you and you lost it. He said, I never knew you. The noble man didn't believe until he lined up his time. Mary and the people and the disciples and even some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't believe until they saw Lazarus' body walking out of the tomb after he'd been there for four days. Thomas refused to believe until Jesus was standing in front of him and saying, here's the nail prince, Thomas. Here's this wound in my side. And Jesus said, Blessed are they that believe and have not seen. I don't need to see a physical Jesus. I have it all recorded in the words of that book called the Bible. I can see him through faith. Does your belief work? If it ain't working, maybe it's not saving either. Does your belief change the way you live? If you're saved, guess what you need to do? You need to get baptized. If you really believe in Jesus, you ought to believe enough to get wet. Amen? If you really believe in Jesus, you ought to believe enough. Ladies, 
to put up with the little brats. I mean, those wonderful little children in the nursery. Amen? Men, we've got some men in this church that believe enough to take the children down during the children's church and miss a sermon and miss being fed themselves so that they can take care of the children and give us a place where we can concentrate on God's Word. I like that kind of belief. Is your, we have people that believe enough to get a handful of tracks and walk up and down the streets and pass them out. To call people that are friends and people they have influence with. You know, I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, why can't I... Well, you're not even a member of the church. Well, why is that? Well, we only allow people who are members of our church to serve. Because that's why the Bible says the church is the body of Christ. You need to be attached and you need to be serving. If you're not, you better check out what kind of belief you have. Because if it works... It's going to make you do some things. And all God's people said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in prayer this morning. And Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do so much more than can be accomplished with simple words. My prayer is that none would be offended by the words unnecessarily. But, Lord, if they are offended, that they would be offended to believe more in you and your word. Lord, we want the Holy Spirit to make decisions during this time of invitation, not our emotions. We want the word of God to be the basis of everything that is made, not our desires to be better people. Lord, I ask that you would work in our hearts and in our church during this time of invitation, that as we call this a worship service, it would truly be a worship service, a surrender of our lives and souls to the obedience of your word. Pray the Holy Spirit would have freedom to touch specific issues in specific lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, Brother Franz, if you come and lead us in the hymn of invitation. Five hundred.